Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Now, come here, I tell you. This is our hundredth, hundredth podcast. Thank you so much for listening, for giving us your time. I know people are busy. I know in the lockdown people might not be busy, but an hour listening to us rabbiting on is an extraordinary gift that you've given us. So thank you so much. I can't quite believe my man. A hundred episodes. A hundred. That's a lot of that's a lot of audio. It's a lot of time. That's a lot of so you having to... you having to listen to me <laughs> and cut it up yeah. and make it plausible. Do you, do you know Take what? out all the bleepers or the bloopers. What are they called? Bloopers? Bloopers. But you know, I, I've been in editing. In fact, the entire podcast is a blooper. <laughs> I've been editing audio for years, but it's always weird editing yourself. I always find it really odd. But and I'll tell you this, quite honestly, when I'm editing, I'm actually smiling when I'm editing particular podcast it's great that is that's a very very good sign you know you know that john has the man shed at the back and into it it's man it's like it's like his refuge you know it's it's like his sure little is. oasis of calm and then he's got me he's in more his so ear now. You're poor. <laughs> but, it's 100. but what a week in america what a week god i loved it i was glued and i was flicking from fox news to aon during the the actual riots what's aon see, one american network never heard is, of it yeah, it's another. It's like another one is called Newsmax. These are, these, are, are these left wing, right wing. Oh, right wing, totally oh, really? right. Okay. Oh, these are okay. totally right wing. Okay. These are are Trump. And I bet you actually Trump is going to invest in either one of those. But Trump has no money. Well, actually, that's, that's the whole thing. <laughs> well, he's going to invest his Russian money. We have more money than Trump. <laughs> Trump's, Trump's a complete fraud. That's actually very true. He's no money. Exactly. What's he going to do? But while the riots were going on, they started off going all for Trump. Yeah, yeah. And then when it all started going arseways, they started pulling back and saying, oh, no, this this is Antifa. And there were some crazy conspiracy theories going around. Like, for instance, one of them was that this was a Dem plot. A Uh, Democratic plot? Yeah, the Demo Rats plot. Because, (laughs) and the reason being was that, you know that piece of footage where the cops kind of stood back and let the crowds, some of the crowds come through. Yep, I, you saw I, that. I did, yeah. yeah. Well, they were saying that this was timed so it would coincide with the debate for the voter fraud part of the debate that was going on. 
that day. So what actually happened was, this is great, they're brilliant for coming up. How long do you spend at night watching this sort of nonsense? (laughs) But the, the theory was that the cops let them in just in time to disrupt that. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. They disrupted that... That side uh, debate. Of the debate, yeah. And then when they did reconvene, they skipped the vote on that and went straight on to the college count, which was... So, of course, they're all up in arms on Twitter and parlour and all these kind of things. Conspiracy uh, theories. We will do, oh, a, man, we will so do a whole podcast we should. on conspiracy we should. theories because I do quite like them and I know you love them. I love them. But what is disturbing is that they have become so prevalent over the last few years with Trump. I forget Trump. To go back to Jesus, that was the greatest conspiracy theory all. Your man's well, dead. No, he's not dead. Yes, he is dead. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> Think about it. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> you know, what I really like is your, your new Jamiroquai look today. Are you digging and, the, and the Daniel Boone pelt and the buffalo horns and all, channeling your inner Daniel Boone. That extraordinary stuff, you know. But he's, he's my standout character, by the way. Did you hear yeah. quite dude? Yeah. Okay. Well, he's at all of them. He was at all the BLM ones as well, apparently. So he's just, he's kind of a, a serial protester. Yeah, but there, I mean, there is, but there is a serious point here. I mean, there's a really serious point about, I mean, actually, what is interesting, we're going to talk all America today. We're mm. going to go and talk to Tom Frank in Kansas. He's in Washington. Yeah. We're going to talk to him in a second. But it's interesting, there was two Americas on display this week. There was... Jamiroquai and his mates, yeah. right? Proud Boys, Trump, etc. The chaotic end to the Trump presidency, the carnage that he talked about this time last year. He talked this time four years ago. He talked about American carnage. There it was, his people. But also there was an extraordinary other America on display, which was what happened in Georgia, right? Yeah. In Georgia, you get now Raphael Warnock, a black man, and John Ossoff, a Jewish man. For the first time, right? Yeah. In Think about Georgia. Georgia is the state where the Ku Klux Klan was refounded in 1915. Okay. Okay, so deep Georgia. And yet the other side of America, while in Washington you get all the right-wing extremists, in Georgia they're electing a black man and the first Jewish senator ever from that county. Have you ever that- heard your man talk, Ossoff? No. Oh, brilliant. He's he's really impressive. You know, do you know somebody who who talks and there's no fat on the words at all? Everything he says is very precise and very spot on. Like you. Exactly. The Cicero of Stilorton, (laughs) the great order. Listen, let's go to the States and talk to Tom, get his view on it. Tom Frank. Tom, good to have you on the show. How are you, man? I'm I'm uh, I'm actually doing really well. I just got a COVID test. I'm officially certified healthy. I'm going skiing tomorrow in Vermont. Oh, up in in, in Bernie country. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, they got mountains and snow. So it's uh, that that magic combination. I'm going to start this interview by reading from the opening page of a book by Tom Frank called The People Know. And it says, and this is in the context of what's happened this week. In just a few short years, we Americans knew what we were doing in the world. We were going to make the planet into one big likeness of ourselves. We had the experts. We knew how it was done. Our policy operatives would de-radicalize here 
and regime change there, our economists would float billions to the good guys and slap sanctions on the bad guys, and pretty soon the whole world was going to be stately and neat, a place that was safe for dead instruments and empowerment seminars, our hors d'oeuvres in the embassy, the gardens, the taxis we hailed on our smartphones, democracy of thee we sang. What yes. has happened to that Yeah, did you America? notice the reference to Ulysses? Did you notice the echo from stately and neat? Oh man, that's stately, stately plump, plump Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> we did book Mulligan last week here, but tell me about America right now. What's your take? Oh my God. Uh, well, it's crazy. Okay, so the last couple of days, you know, I haven't even been able to sleep. It's been that that bad. I, I'm here in Washington, so I take it personally. With uh, one branch of government basically incited an attack on another branch of government. Uh, absolutely nuts. Uh, and the day it ha- I couldn't believe it happened. At first, I thought it was kind of amusing. And then I was like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? This is terrifying. You know, they they beat up cops. The cops shot back. You know, it's it's absolutely nuts. And, and uh, I say this as someone, you know, we've had a lot of protests over the last year. You know, I was in Wisconsin 10 years ago when they occupied the uh, Wisconsin State Capitol building. But this is different. This is, you know, this is, this is riot. This is, I don't know if I'd call it an attempted coup because it's too stupid for that. These people didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they had, it it obviously was premeditated. Don't, don't get me wrong. They had, they had thought this through. I don't know if Trump thought it through and his leadership is just absolutely and utterly disgraceful. And uh, I think they, they should remove him from office, but I I don't know if they're, they're not going to be able to. Okay. You think, Um, but you think they could and they should. Even with I think ten days should. to I go, think Pence, I think Pence should do it. I think he should do it right now. It's he's he's dangerous, and I think they should. The Republicans should come, but they've already they've already blown that, and uh, the the uh, Congress moves too slowly to get him out. He has twelve days left. That Congress moves too slowly to get him out in that time. They're just they're just too damn slow, and you, you, there's no point even trying it unless they've got the votes to actually remove him from office. Just impeaching him for symbolic reasons is pointless. They've already done that, you know. And by the way, this is real. I thought the last impeachment was, um, you know, iffy. You know, it was like, why are they doing this? I don't. And and they themselves they dropped it as an issue. Biden never even talked about it, you know, uh, during the campaign. But this is real. He needs to go. They need to get him out of there. And one of the reasons they need to get him out of there is it would block him from ever running again, if they successfully removed him from office. But we we digress. So the country is. People are really shook up. People are frightened. Although, when I, you know, I talk to my relatives and I talk to people I know back in Kansas, and they're really not that upset about this. For them, it's something distant and far away. And they've seen riots on TV all summer, or what they call riots, you know. And uh, it's not that shocking for them. But for me, it's, it's really upsetting. Now, we also had an election. I haven't spoken to you since exactly. November, right? And, and, and so, mean, the, so the Democrats have, have, have come away with a majority. So the Democrats have have won, and they and they they won the presidency, and they've got the Senate and the House of Representatives. Although uh, both of them just by the skin of their teeth, very very narrow majorities. In fact, in the Senate, it's going to be tied, and they're counting on their Democratic vice president to cast the tie-breaking vote basically all the time. This is not a great recipe for ruling for legislating. But <laughs> as you but, can but, imagine. It, but, but the thing is, Tom, it is a recipe in the sense that you know. If you look at Trump, you know, people talk about Trump and we, we I want to talk about in a second, Trumpism, Trump movement, the relationship between the Tea Party and where it all comes from. But the balance sheet for Trump at the end of the day is 
chaos at the end. The Republicans have lost the presidency, the Senate, and the House. Yeah. So but this is, so it, it's just, you know, look, it, it's, that's, that's typical. He's been, a, when you're a lousy president, that happens. <laughs> the thing is that this doesn't spell the end of Trumpism. And the, the, I mean, one of the things I would draw your attention to is that every pundit uh, expected that the election in November, you know, t- a month ago to be uh, an overwhelming Democratic victory. And it wasn't, it was a, uh, it was a narrow Democratic victory. And in in the House, they actually went the wrong the wrong way. Uh, the Democrats lost seats rather than gained them. And I was surprised that Trump's vote increased as much as it did. That was really strange. I was very surprised by if when you when they did the when they sort of drilled down into the you know whose votes changed that Trump did as well as he did among Latino communities. You saw the results in those uh, counties along the Rio Grande in Texas. That's quite impressive, you know, remarkable what he did. Uh, and But then the, the the places that went for Biden are the kind of places like where I grew up. And I can tell you some great stories about this. So I grew up, we've talked about this before. I grew up in Johnson County, Kansas. This is the affluent suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri. It's Kansas City is right on the state line. And uh, the sort of historic part of the city is in Missouri. But beginning in the 1950s, well, earlier than that, but mainly in the 1950s, the city spilled over into the state of Kansas. And that's the part where I grew up. And it was it's always been very, very wealthy, still is. And, you know, excellent public schools, the whole thing, you know, that, that rich white people do when they're all in this little suburban county by themselves. And um, I grew up there and I made fun of them many times. I used to write, you know, articles about making fun of their architecture and making fun of their taste in music and making fun of their taste in drama and literature. I wrote a whole book about it called What's the Matter with Kansas, where it starts with me like making fun of these people because they were the most Republican people in America. Affluent white professionals, you know, accountants, architects. This is the, you know, the upper class of Kansas City, all living in this little county and very, very affluent and uh, very Republican. They hadn't voted for they haven't voted for a Democrat since 1916. Woodrow Wilson. Wow. Okay, this county, I mean, Uh, and back then it wasn't metropolitan. It was rural. Right. It was farmers. They hadn't, they hadn't voted for Democrats and said every election went Republic. Republicans controlled every office. They controlled the local government. They, you know, governors of Kansas were often drawn from Johnson County. This is the ruling class, not only of the city, but of the entire state. And they were Republicans, of course, because that's where that's what money is. That's what the ruling class is. Well, Mr. McWilliams, Biden just won there. Biden just flipped Johnson County blue, something I thought I would never see as long as I lived. Johnson County just went for the Democrat. And not only did it go for the Democrat, you drill down into the data and the richest parts of Johnson County. These are parts that are on the national scale rich, like billionaires living next door to billionaires in these baronial manners from the 1920s, right? He won every precinct in that part of the city. Biden did. This is this is what is happening in this country is a gigantic reversal. So let's talk tr- about that reversal because this is something that I'm not picking up if I listen to the news. If well, I they don't, skim read, they I'm don't not- let me on the news in this country anymore, my friend. You know that. <laughs> no. I, you, they used to be very interested in what I have to say, but that's it. Is this is now what I'm telling you is like forbidden knowledge, as which I, is funny because it's, it's right out in the open. You know, you can you easily know, look it up. As I said to you, you know, sometimes you start mainstream, you go radical, you go fringe, and then you swing back. You're going to be on CNN before you know it. But listen, <laughs> oh, that's nice of you to say that. But 
in my career, it's been the other way around. I started as a, as a fringe, you know, I had to start my own magazine. Right. And then, and then I became this, uh, you know, I was on TV and radio and whatnot, and now I've gone back to the to uh, podcasts the in Ireland. Jesus, yeah, here I <laughs> am, right? This is yeah, this is the biggest audience I'm going to get for this book, right? It's you, David McWilliams, <laughs> and your friends. Exactly, are going to buy, and the book is called "The People Know." Now, Tom, tell me what about the big switch in America? Because it what I, what I what I love about talking to you is this kind of helicopter view. That hold on a second. The Democratic Party has taken the epicenter, the ground zero of the Republican Party in Kansas, which is the epicenter of America. And the Republican Party are now taking all sorts of strays and waifs that used to be the Democratic base. Right. The uh, labor, white working class base. And, uh, you know, to give you a the the sort of opposite of Johnson County, Kansas, is um, there's a county in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, where Youngstown is. This is a industrial, former industrial, what they, what we now call the Rust Belt, because we've had this thing in America called deindustrialization, and you know it's yes, just very it's painful. Just, oh yeah, it's it's just well, it's astonishing. It's a reversal of everything that if you're as old as me, I'm 55. It, it's a reversal of everything you thought you knew about America that this was the land of the great in, the great industrial nation of the world. This was the great middle class nation. This is a place where everybody, even you know, working class people had a stake. And deindustrialization is the ultimate reversal of that. And it's just burned through this country without any politicians raising a finger. Why? Because they they thought this was fine. They have no problem with it. They they're responsible for it, you know. But it, but it's also I was listening to Mitt Romney the other day. Now Mitt Romney, of course, has is now reinvented as a lovely chap and a really nice guy. Maybe he is. But you know, Mitt Romney was working for one of the large consultancy firms, McKinsey, for many many years. And their job. Oh, you're thinking of Bain? It was Bain. Bain. Bain, Bain McKinsey. Bain McKinsey. They're all the bloody same. <laughs> yeah, I know. And their stock and trade. <laughs> in many cases, was managing the deindustrialization to make sure that the owners of the industry managed to sell the rump of the industry for their own gain, right. and the workers got screwed. And that's right. They call this offshoring. They have all sorts of they have all sorts of nice euphemisms for it. But let's talk. But about that's the that's basically what they did. Yeah. So let's talk about the reality of that shift and what it means for the next. Decade, four years, five. Let's not half decade. Well, it's there's that, but there's also a shift in consciousness, which is, uh, you know, my friend Matt Taibbi has written about that. That the um, the media, you know, following the example of Fox News, Fox News was kind of the pioneers in this that figured out that politics was also entertainment, and sort of embraced a lot of the uh, what you know the sort of fake populism of the right. Uh, way back when and uh, and started selling it to these audiences and it's very you know it's very seductive i don't know if you ever watch fox news but it's 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 uh, for a certain kind of person who's done pretty well in life i wrote about these people in what's the matter with kansas i called them the bitter self-made men oh yes these guys who've, yes the guy, these guys who've done very well in life uh they're they're very prosperous they're very affluent but they feel like they're disrespected they constantly feel like everyone is sneering at them because they're not like well educated and they don't have good manners and they're kind of they're kind of bigoted but, you know and this but this is Dickensian. i mean this is this is the mayor of castlebridge this is thomas hardy this is the victorian revolution in england this story is as old as the hills and yeah. yet in america it's entertainment in it America, of America. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like dress up like the guy from Jamiroquois and sack the Capitol. 
right? That, that's he's, where it he's, ends. He's, 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 he's definitely our dude of the week. I mean, John is actually, John is going to get a Jamiroquai hat. We're going to actually get his horns. We're going to get a Daniel Boone uh, long Davy Crockett. Pelt, Davy Crockett. We're going to be the Alamo. And then John is going to raid the doll here. Absolutely. I've got the big horn. Tom, let us get, let us get to, the, to, to the inflection point here, though, right? Biden comes in in a week's time or two weeks' time. He's got basically the presidency, the Senate, the Congress behind him. The Trumpian revolution has been paused and has been besmirched and badly tainted by the last yes. couple of days. What happens yes. now? So, look, I'll tell you what I hope happens. I'll tell you what's going to happen, okay? What I hope ha- happens is that Biden steps up and unleashes a second new deal and, you know, energetically distributes vaccine, energetically props up the economy, pulls us out of this tailspin. You have a booming economy and Biden or some other Democrat is triumphantly reelected in four years. And and that's the end of this nonsense. And Biden also unleashes the labor movement, you know, uh, changes the laws so that it's possible to form a union in this country again. And that, that which would change everything. A couple of other structural things you can do that would completely change the landscape and make sure that Trumpism disappears. Uh, he's not going to do those things. Okay. Biden is 78 years old. He's older now than Ronald Reagan was the day Ronald Reagan left office and flew back to California. You watch this, there's no energy there. Um, he gets angry. You see flashes of anger from time to time that are often disconnected from, I mean, it's not clear what he's angry about. You don't, I don't see the, the kind of energy there that is required. Look at the cabinet he's assembled. It's, uh, it's just Obama 2.0. It's the cabinet that Hillary would have assembled. It's a whole lot of p- glittering prize winners, Mr. McWilliams. People I, with um, yes, with with very nice people PhDs. with advanced degrees. People yeah. with uh, you know people who've won all these you know uh, Rhodes scholarships and all this other bullshit that Democrats now you know respect so highly. Uh, these are not people that are going to make waves. These are people that are. Ex- I mean, the, what are the words that I I like to use to describe Democrats? They're satisfied. These are satisfied individuals. These are incredibly complacent individuals. These are people that don't think they have anything to worry about because, you know, the official strategy of the Democratic Party is wait for demographic change. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to serve anybody. You don't have to deliver anything. Demographic change is the only thing that matters, and it's going our direction, so don't do anything. They feel no concern for the working class as working class people, deindustrialization, et cetera, all the things we were just talking about. I mean, if anything, it's the other direction now. I mean, there's been this whole, you know, you wouldn't know this if you hadn't been in America the last couple of years. People hate what they call the white working class now. Which is, by the way, either uh, an absolute majority of the population or real close to it. I mean, over 50 yeah. percent of the population of this country and and the uh, the sort of pundit class and the well, you know, bien pensant, you know, right thinking uh, professionals hate these people. I'm telling you, David, this is not a healthy situation um, when the party of the left despises, you know, a big chunk of the working class. That's not that's not good. Anyhow, this is this is Biden's team, and I do not expect great things from them. And I expect, on the contrary, that they'll sit around and they'll fiddle around for two years. The, the rollout of the vaccine will be a fiasco and a disaster, and that the next Trump to come bubbling up, Trump himself is 
I think you're right, permanently disgraced. I think Josh Hawley is permanently disgraced. I think um, Ted Cruz is real close to that. But there's a bunch of them that aren't. And you'll see one of, you know, Mar- sure. Marco. And, and, and has me- memories are short and people move on and, you know. Right. And uh, you're going to find that a lot of America isn't really upset about what they just did because they don't know it. They don't know about it. They don't, you know, this is inside Washington stuff. They don't but, know. But, but what- also the latest polls, uh, to the extent that you can actually trust them, given what's happened with polls, are saying that amongst Republican voters, the majority, it's a small majority, but the majority think it was okay. Among Republican voters, Jesus Christ! You know, so like in- I actually, I, I, I've spoken to some of them who thought who who said, "Well, this is no different than what Black Lives Matter was doing all Precisely. summer." Precisely, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so you're, and this is this is this is what I want. So, it's this idea that the the meritocracy, the educated class, as you said, the, the glittering prize class has taken over the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party allowed itself. It's because this strange sort of triumvirate of Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood being their their sort of totemic heroes, yep. okay, rather yep. than blue-collar workers, right? Yep. So the blue-collar yep. worker, to the extent that he or she is still around, and they are around, they've got to find a new home. Trumpism is a home for them. And what right. you're saying that's with the whole that's this is the, the genius of this. So we talked about the democratic strategy. I want to take you back for a second to the 1990s when the all of these things, these strands first came together and the Democrats realized that they had a winning, a, a possibility of winning with this professional class approach, Bill Clinton administration. Yeah. And they they had a saying, and this was these trends were already manifest at the time. I wrote a book about it at the time called What's the Matter with Kansas? And they, these trends were already manifest. You could see this happening, but they had an answer to it. And the answer was, you talk about black voters who Clinton massively pissed off with welfare reform, I mean, insulted with welfare reform, the crime bill, et cetera. And you talk about working class voters, union members who he massively, these are two huge elements of the Democratic constituency at the time unions who he massively pissed off with NAFTA and various other trade agreements. And what was the Clinton Clintonism's answer to these groups? You know what it was. They have nowhere else to go. Until they, they went to the Tea Party. Until Trump came along. And Trump is like Trumpism or the Tea Party, however you want to put it, but Trumpism gave them somewhere else to go. And that's the whole genius of this. You remember Trump's slogan or one of his slogans in 2016, he would say to black voters, what do you got to lose? You know, give it, a, give me a try. And that was really cynical and, um, and, and, and misleading. But, but, but also kind of factually accurate. He's yeah, but it was that. it was it was exactly the right thing to say to people who have been taken for granted by the Democratic leadership for so long, and uh, you did see some movement, by the way, in this election uh, a month ago among Black voters toward Trump, which is, you know, um, not that surprising because there the Black voters support the Democrats so overwhelmingly that I mean, which there's only one way for them to go, really. Yeah. But the 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 movement among the white working class has been shocking, startling. Well, that's happened over the last 30 years. And then now the movement among Latino working class voters, that's starting now. But this is all, look, there is precedent for all of this. So in the New Deal days, one of the main elements of the New Deal coalition was what was Catholic voters. This is overwhelmingly working class white people. And they, uh, over the years, they developed different ways of talking about them. And in the 60s, the term was the white ethnics 
They called them white ethnics. And the white ethnics swung from the Democrats to the Republicans in that period, in the late 60s and all through the 1970s. There was all sorts of literature about it. This happens. You can't just count on demographics to, to be your pal sure, and that you, these groups will never change sides. No, yeah, and you, need, what, you need a message that is more than, yes, we can, or... Or that we're, that we're really smart. Yeah, that's a bad message. That's a really bad one. That's a really dumb one. Okay, that's that's the stupidest smart message I've ever heard. I know, but it's so flattering to this like small group of people who are in charge. You know, this is what you start to realize about these guys. Everything revolves. You haven't read the whole the whole my populism book yet, but you get to the chapter about the 1950s and how the word got flipped. How the word went from meaning, you know, working class movement to meaning proto-fascism. And the, the guys that the word populism, it, the word populism, yeah, the word populism. Yeah, the word populism. Okay. How did it get flipped? And the uh, the guys who flipped it were these intellectuals and they did it like uh, because they themselves personally dislike the idea of working class movements being in charge. They want themselves to be in charge. And that's why they flipped it. It's to discredit the other, like uh, the, this main element of the democratic coalition. But listen, we could talk for hours. Let us conclude, Tom Frank, okay, on the United States. What you're saying to me is populism has taken a side movement, right? But it is, you think it's the movement of the future in the States. Is that what you're saying? Look, I, I use the word populism differently than you do. I think, uh, the, look, uh, there's no question but that working class anger is the future. The problem is that the party of the left in this country has completely lost touch with it. And the party of the right uh, appeals to it with all this kind of made up crap, you know, like QAnon and whatever the hell it is. And um, look, as I've said to you before, we are in the middle of a vast historical experiment in this country. What happens to a middle-class society when there is no left? We successfully killed the left in America. There used to be one, but we killed it. And we're now in the middle of a great experiment in this country to see if you can have a middle-class society without a political left. And what we're learning, what happens, you know, what, who did the left used to speak for? Well, you, you and I are old enough to know it spoke for working class people. That's yep. what the left was about. It was about economic concerns. And you have to, in America, you have to really dig to find that out. People don't even know that, that that's what the left was about. So you take that away. And it doesn't matter what you know or what you think you know. These people are going to be angry. These people still have their grievances. Their grievances are legit. They really, they really are pissed off about what's happened to their way of life. Well, what's going to happen is that the party of the right, which is we have a robust party of the right in America, they are going to invent, you know, extremely clever ways of reaching out to, and maybe not even clever, you know, they'll, they'll happen upon them randomly, like Trump did. You know, he's just he's just throwing shit out there in 2016. And the audience cheers at some of it. So he keeps saying it, you know, and they learn. Uh, by trial and error to do this stuff. And, and eventually he's got these people on his side. He's reached out to them with some other grievance, some made up way of talking about their problems and re and, and despising elites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to, they're going to succeed. And this is going to go on. And uh, one other thing I want to tell you about the, the right, you know, from my years of studying them, We've just seen an incredible outrage here. What the right does in this country is they build on their outrages. This year's outrage is tomorrow's norm. And this will go on and on and on uh, until the day that the Democratic Party finally figures out that just, you know, throwing your PhD in people's faces isn't good enough, you know? 
<laughs> demanding that the world get down on its knees and respect you is not enough. That's not going to pull it. It's not going to win in a democracy. Tom, can I just ask you a quick question just before we finish up? Yeah. Just to take you back to the Biden cabinet and how yeah. they structured that. Is the expectation in America that these first four years of the Biden administration, probably the only four years, actually. Well, he's, but, but he's going to do well if he keeps going. Yeah. But <laughs> is the expectation that he's going to try and reverse or fix everything that Trump did? Well, Biden himself has said he's not going to do that. I mean, he's also said that he that he could. So Trump uh, got a lot of things done through executive orders, uh, which Obama did before Trump. But Trump, it was obviously massively more consequential. And so everything that Trump did by executive order, Biden can reverse by executive order. But Biden has already said he's probably not going to do that. Look, what they're counting on is uh, in American politics, it's not the first four years. It's the first hundred days that matter. This goes back to Franklin Roosevelt, who had a really spectacular first hundred days, got world changing, you know, history changing legislation done. And uh, I I haven't seen any indications that they're planning anything really, really great. You know, there's been a lot of suggestions out there, but look, we all know what has to happen. He has to go after COVID uh, in in a, you know, really aggressive way. He has to turn the economy around immediately. And I haven't seen anything that indicates they know how to do those things. And which is, which is depressing. Yeah. It seems like a tall order. All right. No, it's not, though. They can do it. We've done it in the... Look, look Democrats have done it in the past. The amazing thing it is in, 19, so in 1948, New York City vaccinated some outrageous number of people in the millions yeah. in a matter of In weeks. a very short amount of time. In a matter yeah. of they, weeks. They, wait, they did, they, we've done that many times in this country. Uh, have you... So... I, I know you wanted to wind up, but my dad is 92. I just went on the Kansas, the Kansas you know, Health Department website to try to figure out where he goes to get the vaccine. And you should check it out because it's like they've developed this whole protocol for handing out the vaccine. It's enormously complicated. There's no indication of where you go to get it, where, how, where you sign up, where you put your name. It says that, that people his age will be able to get it at some point. But it doesn't say where or how or how you can make contact with them. There's no indication. It's just this massive, extremely complicated program of who gets it before who else. And it's like, wow, you really do, you put a lot of money into devising that scheme, didn't you? You know, it's just like roll the fucker out, get it out there. Yeah. In every every elementary Everything you said there school, sounds and, incredibly that's familiar. Exactly what's happening here. And do you know why I believe it is? And we'll leave it on this. You might just have a, a last beat in this, Tom. It's because the public service has been infantilized by consultants. So in the yeah. old days, you had... Oh, like, that's good. No, but that's, it's true. Yeah, that's so, totally true. Yeah, yeah. If I you, don't mean that's good. I mean, that's a good take. Oh, okay, keep say it again. <laughs> say it again. Don't Frank like my take. No, but it's that's true. That's a brilliant take. That's <laughs> a brilliant take. <laughs> that's the best take I've heard of for years. No, but if, if you disembowel the public sector of the bits of the public sector that are difficult, like how do we react to crisis, like how do we plan things, and you give it to Bain and McKinsey and all these crowd. Then when actual fact, when something actually happens, the public sector is not capable of reacting because you've gutted it of its competence. Yeah, but you've also, in America, you've got the added problem of a complete moron and imbecile at the top. You know, who hasn't he hasn't said anything about COVID since the election. All he cares about is like challenging the election. He hasn't. I mean, he's he's lost. He's like mentally lost. You well, know, you've probably seen the last of him. 
Yeah, thank goodness. You know, <laughs> I'm going. I'm going skiing tomorrow. I don't. When I come back, he's going to be gone. I'm not going to think about him anymore. <laughs> Tom, listen, take care of yourself. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, excellent. Thanks, As always, Tom. See you All soon, right, man. So long, guys. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's always great mileage in Tom, I have to say. Ah, he's he's one of the, he's actually he is his writing is exquisite. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievably beautiful prose. I mean, it's he writes beautifully, but his analytical brain is second to none. But you know what was interesting now is all the stuff that he was saying almost echoes what Steve Bannon was saying mm-hmm. in Fire and Fury. Remember from a couple of couple, couple of years, years ago, ago? Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the big the big book about Trump. Let me, yeah, let yeah. me read you a quote. He says, Trump, in Bannon's view, was a chapter or even a detour in the Trump revolution, which had always been about weakness in the two major parties. The Trump presidency, however long it lasted, had created an opening that would provide the true outsider their opportunity. Trump was just the beginning. And in actual fact, Trump tweeted recently and in his so-called concession speech, he kind of referred to that himself. He said, to all my wonderful supporters, this is only the beginning. But I think it's, I mean, if you think about what Tom is saying, you think about what Steve Bannon is saying, what they're saying is America is going through a huge experiment. Now, the mm. interesting thing is politics kind of tends to go like that. Politics and economics go in long, long cycles. And when you're in the middle of an inflection point, you don't really see it in the context of cycles. Yeah. But I think, you know, what they're talking about there is the white working man and woman and where they find themselves in society and where they're going to go. And these ideas, John, like the idea that Trump is talking about or Bannon is talking about or Tom is talking about is American nativism. It's mm. basically a fear of the other. So when you get threatened, what you do is you identify the other and you say they are the problem. Yeah. And this is one of the things, and it's very, very deep. You know that book I, I really like to refer to, How the Irish Became White 
by, oh, yeah. by Noel Ignatiev. It's a fantastic, Ignatiev, yeah, it's yeah. A brilliant. And actually, his son, Michael Ignatiev, was a liberal politician in Canada. And so these are very, very interesting Canadian family. Mm. But that book, right, talks about how the Irish became the targets. So the Irish were like the Latinos or the Asians or the blacks of now. Yeah, of their time, And the, yeah. I, the idea was that the, the Know Nothing Party, which was a nativist party, which yeah. is actually called the Order of the Star Spangled Banner. Yes. It's quite a good one, right? They were They're the set Trumps up, of their day. They were the, yeah, in the 1850s. Mm. And the people they were afraid of were the Irish. It's, it's again, it's quite, it's, it's, it's this culture idea. They also blamed the Irish for mixed race kids, for mulattoes. And if you actually look at that book, How the Irish Became White, yeah. there's a whole chapter on the census of 1850. I know this is the sort of stuff I like. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, I know you're nodding off there, right? Okay. But the census of 1850 identifies a new phenomenon in urban America called mulattoes, mixed race kids. Yeah. And overwhelmingly, the mothers were Irish. Overwhelmingly. So these were poor Irish women who came into America. This is this idea of the black Irish. This is why there yeah, are so yeah, many yeah. Irish, like Shaq O'Neill and Eddie Murphy and all these, so many black Americans with Irish names. This is yeah. where they come from. But for the know-nothings, right, because they were racist, this was the evidence of how depraved both the African-Americans and the Irish were in these poor districts. Because not mm. only were they living cheek by jowl, but they were having kids together. Yeah. And for white racists, this was an abomination. That's the first thing. The other thing was that Irish immigrants were reducing wages in certain areas. And of course, the Yankee workmen... What do you mean? Oh, oh through competition. Because there was, yeah, there was yeah, thousands yeah, yeah, of them yeah, coming yeah. in yeah. all the time. And the Yankees... But, I mean, an extraordinary statistic in that book, which is that the average Irish male immigrant, the average... Think about their average lifespan when they arrived in America was six years. Wow, from, from the time they landed... From the time to- they landed from Ireland into America, they lasted, on average, six years before they died. Wow. So think wow. about the conditions they were in, right? But that Jesus, nativist, that's shocking. It is shocking, isn't it? But that nativist streak has been in the United States for a long, long time. It's mixed up with religion. It's mixed up with ethnicity. It's mixed up with economics. It's mixed up with the politics. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things going on, right, John? It's not only the, the race issue, right, which is very explicit yeah. in the Trump's words. There was no, there were no black people in that uh, Trump rally the other day. Okay, no, none. Right? Okay, so it's the, still the same, still the same gene pool they're talking about. But the other thing is the contrast between what the white working man used to have, John, and what they have now. Now, so if you look in the last thirty years, it's not that the income of white working class Americans has fallen in absolute terms, but it's fallen in relative terms to largely, if you look at the the most successful ethnic minority in America at the moment, are West Africans. Everyone always says it must be Asians or Koreans or Chinese. The most successful bunch are West Africans, are Nigerians. And that is really freaking out the white working class, right? Wow, that's really surprising because it was always seen as, actually, particularly in the West Coast, is always the the Koreans. Well, and, Koreans and, and Vietnamese and yeah, then whatever. Yeah. Well, in actual fact, now, right now, in the last 10 years, right, it's West Africans. Wow, okay? that's amazing. They are 68% of them are employed as opposed to 58% of white Americans and as opposed to what 62% of other migrants, right? 
And also, six out of ten Nigerians have bachelor degrees. So they're incredibly well-educated. Oh, right, okay. So, 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 so what I'm saying is, America's in its flux. And when the white guy sees that, he sees, one, an ethnic nativist problem, yeah. as he saw in the Irish yeah, yeah. nearly 100, 200 years ago. And two, he's looking at his own position relative to those coming in. And this is what's driving this extraordinary fear on their part. And it's the fear of the other. Now, the problem for them is that it's going to get worse, not better. I mean, what you're looking at, John, is if you go back to the nativist movement and you look at history, every big geopolitical event, every big change, whether it's technological or economic or whatever, has opportunities and costs. Mm. And in America, there is this nativist streak that they feel threatened by the change, right? Yeah. So if you but look people at... People generally feel threatened by change, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. But I mean, the point is, you can't stop the change. This is the interesting thing. Yeah, it's not, yeah, you, yeah. you can't... Like what those guys were trying to do the other day in Washington is stop the change. Yeah. Right? And refashion the world... Stop the steel. To a world, yeah. But they want to refashion the world into a world that suits them. And that's not happening anymore. Yes. And of course, then, if you become afraid, you look for some political party to say, I look after you. Now, traditionally... It used to be the Democrats. This yeah. is Tom's point. Traditionally, the Democrats says, we're blue-collar guys. We're going to look after you. Yeah. But because the Democrats have got into bed with the PhD class and the rock and roll class and the Hollywood class and the Wall Street class, they're about as different to the average white middle-class American as we are, or as Asians are, or as Africans are to them. I mean, it's a totally different culture. Yeah. It's a totally different... This is the meritocracy thing that we've it's, been talking about. Exactly. It's the yeah. same idea. So then you think... Oh, what happens to the middle class in America if nobody's looking after them? If they're threatened, if they feel threatened, mm. right? They become radicalized. They say, okay, you don't want to. And this is back to Steve Bannon's point yeah. that we're at the beginning of a revolution in the United States. And that revolution has been aided and abetted by sort of messianic characters like Trump. But yeah. he's only the first of many. And of course, oh, I, I and the so, idea yeah. is it's, it's, it's a bit like what Larry Dunn said to the cops. Remember the heroin dealer? Yeah. When he was caught, he Larry said, doesn't carry. Remember Larry? Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't carry, right? But he said to the cops, you think I'm bad? Just wait till what's coming behind you. He said that to Dinny Mullins in the 80s about Jesus. drug dealing in Ireland. Because he'd seen it, because he'd been buying the drugs around yeah. the world. And he said, you think I'm bad? Wait till see what's coming oh, behind that, me. That was just in the, it's really shocking. Yeah, yeah. Spine, just it? giving you a bit of my Larry Dunn. A little, <laughs> a little Larry Dunn. But uh, to go back to the point about the white middle class in the States, right? The problem is in the beginning of all these iterations, all these things, it's maybe the working class guys in the factories get affected. But what the Americans don't seem to appreciate is that America itself is going backwards. Yeah. America itself is declining. If you look at the trends for the next decade out to 2030, what you basically see is the world's power is shifting towards Asia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the Americans themselves are just part of a process. So various iterations of the middle class in America are going to be affected by this. It's not just going to be limited. But to this is also a large, large part of it is of their own making in terms of globalization. And as we spoke before about the cheapest supply chains and all the rest, they've left all these, as Tom referred to, rust belts. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, but the rust belt was the beginning of deindustrialization. And this is. Extraordinary. To answer your, your first part of that question, you're absolutely right, is that what the Americans, it's not the Americans, is in general, we've always said in the podcast, that there is no equilibrium 
in economics. Mm. Economics is like a living organism. It's like Gaia. It's like, you know, it's like yeah. the earth, right? Yeah. And it keeps changing. So you, a little fire here and suddenly something else changes over there. It's that idea that the, the global economy is a hypersensitive ecosystem. Yeah. So you can't localize things and say, we're just going to make it work there yeah. because everything reacts, everything innovates and it changes. But so the United States is kind of caught now in a sense that they are in the beginning of a process or in the middle of a process where, a bit like happened in Britain, you know, in the 1950s, I think one of the British prime ministers, I think it was Anthony Eden, just mm. said, we're now in the business of managing the decline. Right? So it's not about right, being okay. the top dogs anymore. Yeah. It's basically, you know, we were top dogs, now we've got to manage the decline. And I think in America, there isn't that sense that they're now in decline. What is happening? If you look at the, the, the figures, so 2030, there's going to be more female millionaires than males in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's an incredible stat. 2001, 15% of the world's wealth was held by women. In 2030, it's going to be, think about it, it's going to be 55%. That's the great. world's middle class is expanding. Yeah. Right now, the middle class of the world is largely European and American. In 2030, which is only around the corner, right, it's going to be Chinese, right? right. And if you think, the other statistic I read the other day is, in 2030, 50% of Americans are going to be obese. Now, obesity... I, I actually thought they already were, to be but, honest. But half of them, half of them, yeah. right? Now, so obesity, as we know, is all linked to social issues and, and, and self-respect issues and lots of very, very deep issues like yeah. this. But what is happening is a gap is opening up in the political market for a new political party, a new ideology. Mm. And what we're seeing now is that although the Democrats have won the presidency, the Senate... And the Congress. So yeah. it looks like a slam dunk to the Democrats. What's actually happening is the momentum is still with the nativists as the likes of Bannon talked about. Yeah, and Trump is is talking about it as well. Yeah, but like I mean, I say, Trump, he, Trump will come and go. The, the Trumpism, that nativist yeah. idea, he basically lit the spark. Yeah, he, he did. And you know what Tom's talking about, deindustrialization. I mean, that's real, John. Yeah. That is real and it's critically important to try and understand the anxieties of people who feel threatened in every society. But this is one of the reasons I asked Tom that question about will Biden try to reverse everything, which of course he's not going to, but he is going to have to bolster the labour movement because that's the only thing that's going to appeal to the white working class or the white workers, as you say. Well, the interesting thing is that Biden has surrounded himself with a more cosmopolitan version of Clinton's cabinet mm. of 20 years ago, right? It's basically, it's, a, it's essentially Obama's cabinet. It's a cabinet full of what I call blackboard economists. Right. right? Yeah. Who, who are good in school. Yeah. They're blackboard economists, not real world economists. Remember, talked to Andy Haldane the other day. Yeah. He says, you, you go to the pub, you talk to people, what's, your, what, what's going on in your the life? Bank of England. Yeah, the Bank of England chief economist, right? Mm. There is a massive disconnect between the Democratic Party and its obsession with blackboard technicians and the real lived experience of the average American in a de-industrializing United States. Now, one of the reasons I feel strongly about this and I've always done is that de-industrialization has a face. These are individual people who lose their jobs yeah. and they lose their jobs largely because of policy. So companies don't tend to go bust on their own. They go bust because something else happens outside of their control. And, you know, years ago, when I, I, you know, one of the reasons you know I got into economics was because when my dad 
in the late 70s, lost his job. Yeah. It affected me, but I it it forced me to think, how does this work? How can this happen, right? Mm. So if you think of what happened in Ireland in the late 1970s and early 1980s, massive recession. Now, there was a global recession at the time, yeah. but it was amplified here by the decisions taken at the very, very top. And those decisions were taken by people like Gareth Fitzgerald, old snobs like him, you know, and based, <laughs> no, he is, he was a terrible old snob, right? And like Fitzgerald and all those guys said, we, we want to be very pro-European. Yeah. And we're going to show this, we're going to tie our currency to the German Deutschmark, which is basically in effect saying, we're going to pretend we're Germans, right? Right, okay. Nobody believed that Irish people were Germans. So you yeah. tie your currency to the German Deutschmark because we want to be good Europeans, right? But all your industry is exporting to the UK because that was our main market. Yeah. So you tie your currency to the Germans. Of course, the German currency is very strong. So your currency gets very strong, right? So people, companies in Ireland that were manufacturing, they start to go out of business because they're becoming uncompetitive vis-a-vis their right, UK, yeah, right? Of course, of course. And then the way the financial markets work is if you have a policy that is incredible, like you're saying, we're pretending to be Germans. Yeah. And people say, well, hold on a second, you're Irish. Your income per head is half of Germany. You will never be able to keep pace with the Germans. So therefore the risk associated with that policy rises exponentially because people don't believe you. And therefore in order for you to get money to come into the country with that exchange rate, yeah. you have to put your interest rates incredibly high to give people the incentive to put money in Ireland to protect them from their fear that you will devalue. Now, what actually happens then, it's called a real interest rate and real exchange rate shock in right. economics. You just get hammered from both you ends. You get hammered from both ends, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So your company cannot export to the UK because yeah. you've priced yourself out of the market, but all companies have debts and your debts suddenly go through the roof. Yeah. And those companies collapsed. And what really annoyed me about again, the Gareth Fitzgeralds of this world and the economic policymakers was when I was in college trying to come to terms with all this and figure it out in my head, mm. the only institution, so huge swathes of Irish manufacturing were destroyed in two or three years, right? Yeah. And unemployment went through the roof, right? The only institution that those fuckers were interested in saving was Bewley's. <laughs> Do you remember this in the 80s? I do. Weird. Front page of the Irish Times, Gareth Fitzgerald saying, we must save Beulis. I'm like, man, you've just destroyed yeah. the manufacturing base. <laughs> Give me a break no, now. I, I don't get it. Fellas in paint factories don't take coffee in the morning. <laughs> right? But I, I remember I was sitting in Trinity thinking, I'm doing economics. We're being run by this fella who, you know, speaks the language of Milton Friedman and operates the economic policies of Juan Veron. Okay? <laughs> and all he's interested in is but why Beulis, was he doing this? Why was because, he doing that? Now, this comes back to Tom's point. There is a massive disconnect between the academic, intellectual, PhD, expert type. And I, we need experts, right? Yeah. But yeah. those experts have to actually end up doing the right thing. And the real world, right? There's a massive disconnect. And it's funny, you know, one of the reasons I went to get a job in the central bank because I want to see who were these agents? Yeah. Who were these people running the camp? You know, because I, you know, I could have gone from other jobs, but I actually really wanted to go in because yeah. I'd read the economics and I'd read what they were trying to do and I could see what happened to my dad. And I could see what happened to loads and loads and loads. I mean, we're talking thousands, tens of thousands of manufacturing workers in this yeah. country. Tens of thousands, right? And we destroyed the manufacturing base. We accelerated the Rust Belt deindustrialization yeah. in order to be good Europeans but, and to go over to Brussels and say, you know... Was that the strategy? I mean, what was the strategy? That was the but strategy. It was kind just of... Just to be a good European. It was, it, was to be, it was to be seen to be good Europeans, to go along with what was ever happening, right? Now, the cost to that 
the cost of that policy was monumental. But because, and I really do believe, because there weren't that many economists around to popularise, to understand it, to say, people didn't see what was going on. That's the problem. That's why this generation is much better. Yeah. Because it's transparent and people see what's going on and they get different ideas and, and whatever, you know. Whereas back then, there was just one view. And, and also, if you took an opposite view, you were ideological, right? That there wasn't any place for the, the thinker who's not really ideological to right. actually... There, there wasn't a stream to swim in. You had to be either left or right yeah. or centrist or whatever. But if you think at the time, the people who really got destroyed by those policies were the industrial working class and manufacturing class and people who actually worked in real industries that made things, yeah. right? That really made things. Fast forward to the United States, deindustrialization is exactly the same process, but it has a face because it's families, it's fathers, mm. it's mothers, it's brothers, it's sisters. And those people rightly feel we are not being spoken to by the Democratic Party. Yeah. Because I don't recognize the Harvard-educated master's PhD individual who is supposed to be talking to me about economics, but economics for me is my balance sheet at the end of the week. It's yeah. my wages. It's my job. That's econo- everyday economics. Yeah. So you've got blackboard economics over here, which is all fine in equations and all yeah. that malarkey yeah, 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 that yeah. I used to do. And then you've got everyday, what I would call kitchen sink economics, yeah. which is back to our friend... Xenophon from last week. Oh, yes. Icon Nomos, yeah. the affairs of the house. Yeah. Xenophon and the Xenophonics. The on Xenophonics. A world, on a world tour. I'll tell you, listen, <laughs> it could be our band. It could be our band. But so into this gap emerges a political philosophy which speaks to the blue-collar worker. Yeah. But it's not just blue-collar. What people don't understand, this is an ongoing process. So people today are in, you know, consultancy jobs or, you know, service jobs. It's the same process. And if you look at the way in which the world has changed, let's just give us a few figures. on. Yeah, on yeah, this yeah, go on. Okay. Right, John, if you think of the big trends, right, mm. the world is changing rapidly. The biggest industrial revolution is going to be in sub-Saharan Africa, right? In yeah. the next 10 years, yeah. there's 500 million acres of undeveloped agricultural land in Africa, undeveloped, completely undeveloped. Agricultural land Ag- or, or, or agricultural lands, yeah, but, it, but it, it's agriculture. It's, it's, wow, it's, uh, that's the size of Mexico. Wow, it's phenomenal, right? If you think of like the middle classes, right, the American middle classes, right, there's going to be one billion members of the middle class by 2030. At the moment, the amount of Americans in the middle class, which is much broader than us, because they describe it much more, is 230 million. Right. By the end of the decade, there's going to be 290 million American middle classes, mm-hmm. right, the middle class, but there's going to be one billion in the middle class worldwide and two-thirds of them are going to be in Asia. So this is a total, right. total, total change, right? And, you know, what is difficult for a country is when you're top dog, when you start to decline. Yeah. Because that's much, much harder than if you're on a decline all the time or if you never ex- experience yeah. wealth. And that's this relative idea in the United States. It, but this is not just the States, Mike. This is happening, well, we, we talked about the 70s in Ireland, but this is happening all over the world at this stage. It's going uh, to happen here. I mean, basically, here, yeah. Western Europe, Canada, Japan, America, and Australia, right, are the countries that were standout wealthy mm. 40 years ago, okay, in comparison. And there used to be this idea of the first world and the third world. And I was yeah, quite yeah, interesting. Yeah. I was listening to CNN 
when I was watching the other thing the other day, the Americans and the Jamiroquai and all those fellows, right? Yeah. And what was quite funny was the commentary. A lot of Americans were saying, commentators were saying, this sort of thing doesn't happen in America. It happens in the third world. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. As if that's, the, that's not happening now. What's happening now is the world is changing profoundly. And here we've got to realise that we've had a good 40 years innings. As I've always said, we've done extraordinary things. But we've got to keep doing extraordinary things because the world isn't waiting for Ireland to get its act together. Yeah. It doesn't care. And we've got to figure out how do we negotiate this extraordinary change so that what is happening in the United States, which is a Trumpian revolution, doesn't happen here. So how does the broad centre remain relevant in Ireland? That's the key question. So explain that one to me. Ireland managed to, by using the tax system, import a huge amount of new manufacturing jobs. Did that extremely well. Yeah. So we've got to figure out how do we keep that model going? How do we attract in investment and people, fuse them together with our own capital and our own people to make goods that the rest of the world wants to buy? It's not Mm. that hard. That's all we've got to do. Can, can, Can I just stop you there? Just explain one thing to me. After Gareth Fitzgerald, when they wiped out manufacturing, at what point did they realise, actually, this ain't working? And where was the change? And was that a deliberate really good change? Question. No, or was it luck? I think it was luck, right? Really? So, so you have all this thing in Ireland, right? You've got this hagiography about big men in Ireland, right? Hagiography. Hagiography is when you, it's like it's a, when you write a, an arse-kissing history. Is a hagiography. Right, okay. It's like, oh, no, you're Good fantastic. I've never heard that. That's great, great word. Yeah. No, you're fantastic. Oh, no, no, you're fantastic. Oh, no, you're even better, right? <laughs> I like yourself and Tom a, earlier. Yeah, it's a, exactly, exactly, <laughs> hagiography. But it's an arse kisser's view of history, right? Yeah. And in Ireland, it's always the big man in history. So the narrative is the following. A fellow called Ken Whittaker, who was an economist, and Sean Lamas came together yeah. in 1955 to write a paper that they published in 1958 which was basically, we're going to open the economy. Right. And all economics that is that you learn, a lot of economics you learn in Ireland says, that was the moment when the economy yes, turned, yeah, right? Yeah, you always hear that, yeah. yeah. But it's bullshit. Because the economy continued to contract for three decades after that, almost. Unemployment went through the roof. Emigration went through the roof. Okay. If this was a great policy, yeah. it would have been evident at least a decade after it. Right. 60s, we were going very nowhere. 70s, we got up for a little bit, then went nowhere. 80s was a total disaster. So from that great Lamasse moment to about 1990, to Italian 90, yeah. nothing happened here. Okay? <laughs> Economically, right? So Italian 90 was that. Italian 90 is very important, okay? Right? It was the anchor year. Right, okay. So I think something else was going on. I think we, and Italian 90 is important because who won Italian 90? Uh, Germany? Absolutely. Your football knowledge is, is, is the Gary Lineker of economic podcasting here. But it's important 1990 because 1990, the unified German team won. Matthias, ah, yeah, Matthias okay. Sammer. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. do you remember these first yeah, words? It was I a do. unified German team. So I think we got lucky and it's the following thing. Poor countries need capital. Poor countries usually have lots of labour, loads of people yeah. and no capital. So the question is, how do you get less people and more capital to actually... And if you've no money, you've got to attract in other people's capital. So you've got to make it cheap, right? And the way you make it cheap is either your wages remain very, very low or your taxes remain very, very low. Mm. And if you go on the taxation side and if you've no capital 
and you go for low taxation, you don't lose anything because you had no capital taxes in the first place. Yeah. So that's what we did, right? And this was a policy that was going on and on and on with some success, uh, some small success in the 80s. But then this policy goes through the roof in the 90s. And the question is why? Yeah, what why? Happened? why? 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 Nothing happened here. What actually happened was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Oh, right. Yes, And of when course. the Berlin Wall fell, which is the unified German football mm. team as our anchor, what happened was American corporations, once Berlin Wall fell, a whole load of things flowed from that, right? One was globalization. One was the internationalization of finance. One was the internationalization of manufacturing. One was American chief executives suddenly said, the world is ours now. Because yeah. who's gone? The Soviets, the communists yeah, are gone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Americans say, okay, let's go to Europe. At the time, the perception was that the Americans would invest in Germany or in Czech Republic or in Poland or in Hungary. So the idea was that Central Europe, the previously communist countries, would do extremely well. Nobody figured out that Ireland might end up being yeah. the bridgehead into Europe. So the Americans thought, no, why don't we base ourselves in Ireland to take advantage of this new Europe and in the process, the Central European countries lost out and we gained enormously. But it was a stroke of luck. If the Berlin Wall right. hadn't fallen so it was down, more luck than it was more luck. Right. Than, and that's why you have Polish people working in Centra here and not Irish people working in Centra in Poland. Yeah. That's what's happening. So this is the huge change that's happened. So I think it was a combination of luck, which we should never discount in anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Having the right policies. Now, what we did do properly was we did educate a lot of people in the 80s. Our mates, older brothers, all emigrated, mm. right? But we did educate people in the 80s who were there to do the work in the 90s when it came in. But my sense is that Ireland got lucky. And the reason Ireland got lucky is we're the only country in Europe with this trajectory of economics. So if this was going on all over the world, Portugal was on the same, Spain, Croatia, all, you know, Southern Italy, the poor countries, yeah. but they didn't. So there's something unique happening in Ireland because our performance was unique and I believe that we just got lucky, right? And luck is really important. Now we've got to figure out how do we get lucky again? But actually, Mac, we, you know, we need a little bit more well, luck at this stage. We do need a bit, bit of luck. We also need, and, the, and it's not we, the whole of the formerly rich Western societies yeah. need to figure out that when you are given a chance by the electorate, which Joe Biden has been given a chance yeah. to offer another solution to the threatened middle class, you have to come up with something more than more of the same, yeah. something more than yes, we can. So it's, it's nice touchy-feely, yeah. but you know, it doesn't mean, people want meat and potatoes. They want to say, okay. Going back to the, the golden days. Yeah. Thing. yeah, so yeah. You've got to say, okay, like, Roosevelt, 1930s, say, okay, we're going to fix this. Mm. It's going to be big government for a while, but what we're going to do is we're going to try and tax wealth so that the wealthy don't take all the gains in society. We're going to try and slow down some of the deindustrialization. We're going to try and make, for example, America or Ireland or Britain more open to the world. So the idea is that rather than speak to the electorate on little small things, I think there should be two strands of governments, right? One strand is fixing the day-to-day -day problems, like COVID, yeah. dealing with it, yeah. trying to get the vaccine working. Okay, the nuts and bolts of running the shop every day. But the other side has to be... Big picture stuff. Big picture stuff. Yeah. Where are we going to do in, in 2030? The other side has to be, okay, we have two governments. We have a government for now, 
and we have a government for, let's say, 2040. And this has to work all the time. So you say, how are we going to negotiate all these changes? What policies are we going to put in right now which will actually make sure that in 2040, Irish kids, our children as they yeah. grow up, and they will have kids by then probably, to, you know, they are actually well looked after, well figured out. Like, so you know the way the Norwegians, they found oil. Yeah. They said, we're not going to spend any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not one. We're going to set up a fund and we're going to look after people. So now the Norwegians are financed for about 300 years, which is amazing. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, the yeah. British found oil at the same time and they blew it all on BMWs. <laughs> they did. The Brits found the same oil. Yeah, yeah. And Mrs. Thatcher gave it away in tax cuts. <laughs> so the Brits could ride, could, could drive BMWs who were made by yeah, Germans, yeah, yeah. which were made by Germans. <laughs> right? Think about That's it. A, yeah. So we've got to be strategic. So I think. But do we have the people, though, that have the empathy for the middle class and the working class and the, the big vision to take us through? I think there's. Are I, they in the right positions? I don't think they're in the right positions. And I think that's one of the major problems is that we are creating in the advisory class, the policy advice class, yeah. far too much, I go back to say, blackboard technicians, yeah. Yeah. and not enough people who've really worked and who really understand that, you know, economics is the business of people's everyday lives. And people's everyday lives have to be lived and experienced to understand that. And I would much prefer if there were, you know, a whole panoply of people who've come from a different place and have a different life experience and drink with different people and hang out with different people, yeah. you know, that idea so that there will be a sense that if you allow economics to be hijacked by economists, by blackboard economists, what you get is equations rather than emotions and emotions drive the world and we need to get back to that. How you doing there? This new year is kind of special because you're going to be locked down. You're going to be stuck at home thinking, what am I going to do? Why don't you give yourself or the person you love the gift of knowledge? And join me and we can learn economics together in this lockdown. You'll do an economics course together. We'll do tutorials. We'll do Ask Mac. You can drop in questions. I'll answer them. And even better... Just because this lockdown is going to be such a pain, we're going to give you a 15% discount for this subscription, the annual subscription. So if you want to learn economics in the lockdown, why don't you subscribe? Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's learn economics together. Economics.